0: that I, I, I kind of think is peculiar. I understand it, and, and, and I don't reject it in any way. I just think it's kind of peculiar, and that is uh, this, this idea or this reality that we live in a very specialized society, a highly specialized society. Uh, let me give you an example of, of what I mean. If you look at any coaching staff for any major college football program, you'll find not just a head coach, an offensive coordinator, and a defensive coordinator. No, you'll find an offensive coordinator, a quarterback's coach, a receiver's coach, a running back's coach, an offensive line coach, a tight ends coach, right? There's this specialization, and then you see the the sort of the defensive uh, equivalent on the other side of the football. If that illustration doesn't work for you, I understand that sometimes my illustrations only work for me, and I'm the one who laughs, and everybody else just looks at me with sort of blank looks in their eyes, wondering what I'm talking about. I get that. Think about doctors, Right, There was a day and age where there were family doctors who would make house calls, and you went to that doctor whether you had an ingrown toenail or tonsillitis, right? and that doctor would do. And they're still around, uh, but really, uh, the practice of medicine, and let's face it, it's called the practice of medicine because they don't really get it right. No offense to doctors out there. It's also called the practice of law, huh. Uh, anyway. Uh, you know, you think about this specialization of doctors. We've got everything from proctologists to podiatrists. You've got cardiologists. You've got neurosurgeons. You've got all these specialized uh, focuses. Same thing with lawyers. Speaking of lawyers, same thing with lawyers. I try to not make a lot of jokes about, about lawyers because as, as our good friend David Simpson has said, Jesus is an advocate. An advocate is a lawyer. And so if you if you hammer on lawyers too much... Lawyers practice, David doesn't care, he's going to hammer on anybody, Uh, uh, (laughs) lawyers practice very specific aspects regarding the law, right? There are uh, both criminal lawyers and civil lawyers, and within those sort of generalized uh, divisions, there's also uh, further specialization, personal and corporate, further specialization. We live in a society where we think that in order to get something properly done, we have to go to an expert to do it. The shape of our culture leads us to think that, and and that's okay, but what happens if this thinking comes into the church? It becomes so easy then to begin to think of the pastor as the professional Christian who has specialized. The pastor is the one who prays the best, the one who knows the best. It would be so easy to begin to think then that if something in the church is to be done, then it's up to the expert to do it. If something like evangelistic outreach is to be done, well, then the professional ought to be the one doing it. Now, this is absolutely true in, in one sense because the Timothy, uh, Paul tells to Timothy, his protege, do not neglect the work of an evangelist. And I'm not trying to denigrate being a pastor, but I, what I'm trying to do is reveal a wider and, and deeper issue. Within the church, the thought of specialization, the thought of finding the expert can actually be harmful because among God's people, God's people in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you see every single believer is called to a ministry of some kind or another, and within that ministry to which every single believer is called, they are called to make disciples. They are called to be evangelists. If I can put it this way, God uses normal people to accomplish his unstoppable plan. We see that expressed for us this morning Uh, As we look at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, as Doug read for us this morning, the church in Antioch rises. We have the rising of Antioch on the backs of anonymous Christians being evangelists. And as we've walked through the last few weeks, as we've walked through uh, the, the first several chapters of the book of Acts, we keep coming back to this key verse that, that sets the tone, that sets the theme, that gives the mission to Jesus' followers. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This verse is so instrumental because here we see Jesus giving his mission to the, his, his church, his followers, and Luke then takes that as the theme and, and unfolds it in the rest of the book. Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God in Jesus is declaring his unstoppable plan to proclaim the coming of his kingdom through the person of Jesus and to bring people into that kingdom. And as Luke has begun to unfold uh, the fulfillment of God's unstoppable plan, he naturally starts in Jerusalem. But then there's steps that are taken to Judea. And then there's steps that are taken to Samaria. And as we come to Acts chapter 11, we find the gospel take root in Antioch as we're approaching the ends of the earth. As we consider this passage, let's talk a little bit about the city of Antioch itself, because it is really significant that the church takes root there. Antioch, according to the historian Josephus, was the third most important city in the entire Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria of Egypt. Antioch was important because, one, it was a city of almost 500,000 inhabitants, It was important because it was a bit of a crossroads uh, for trade, international trade. It had access to the Mediterranean Sea. It was important because it was cosmopolitan. It was uh, a city in in almost every sense of the word in in the fact that there were uh, people from all kinds of different ethnicities from around the Mediterranean world, from around the Roman Empire living there in Antioch, the capital of the the Syrian province, the Roman province of Syria. Uh, Antioch is the first major city outside of Judea where the gospel takes root, where a church is planted. And I. Howard Marshall calls this an event of great significance in the expansion of the church and its mission To the Gentiles. This church in Antioch, as Luke continues to unfold the story, the the church in Antioch rises to a place of prominence as it becomes the mission sending center. This is from where where Saul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey. It's the launching place for missions into the wider Mediterranean world. How are we going to get to the ends of the earth? You go through Antioch, is essentially what's happening here. Now, for such an important work, for a church in such an important place, God must surely have sent Peter and James and John and a whole lot of other apostles to, to evangelize, right? I mean, this is an important city to evangelize, and surely God would have pulled out the big guns. He would have sent the Avengers, you know, Thor and Iron Man. If you didn't like that one, you're not going to be happy in a couple of minutes either. Yeah. No, he doesn't. God doesn't send Peter and James and John. God uses normal people to accomplish his unstoppable plan. And Antioch rises under the work of every man evangelists. As St. Luke begins to explain here in chapter 11 how the gospel came to Antioch of Syria, he, he connects it back to a statement he made previously, a statement from chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here he says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. While the apostles remained in Jerusalem, normal people took the gospel wherever they went. Just as Jesus told his disciples, the church expands geographically and the church expands culturally as it expands beyond Jerusalem and Judea and beyond Jewish people. Moving towards the ends of the earth and moving toward the peoples who inhabit those places, John Stott comments, it's not that the evangelization of the Jews must stop, but that the evangelization of the Gentiles must begin. And here we see very specifically men from or believers from Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. In the English Standard Version, the word is Hellenist. It may be Greek speakers in other translations or simply Greeks. The reference here is to Greek-speaking Gentiles. Men and women who, unlike the Ethiopian eunuch, found in Acts chapter 8, unlike Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, these were Greek-speaking Gentiles who most likely were unconnected to the Jewish faith, beyond even the fringes of Judaism. And where they were in the geography in Antioch of Syria, being Greek-speaking Gentiles, they maybe have not even heard about Jesus. And here we are, here we see these anonymous believers scattered because of persecution, these everyman evangelists, going to those who are blank slates, having never heard of Jesus, not knowing about the events in the backwater of Judea, wondering, there they go, talking about Jesus. But just as an aside, we, we probably ought to prepare ourselves in 2017 and 2017 this second decade of the 21st century, we ought to prepare ourselves for encountering people in our own city of destiny who've never heard of Jesus. Because it happens. You may not believe me, but it does happen. There are people in this world today who don't even know the name of Jesus, much less understand the gospel on any level, much less outright reject it. God uses every man evangelist to take the gospel to plant his church In Antioch. Maybe you've heard of the concept of the everyman. Uh, The everyman is an ordinary, a typical human being. Well, it was a band of typical, ordinary human beings who believed in Jesus that went into Antioch and proclaimed the gospel because God uses normal people to accomplish his unstoppable plan. They were preaching the Lord Jesus, Luke says. These Anonymous, unnamed believers in Jesus who'd been scattered because of persecution took the gospel with them wherever they went. They talked about Jesus among Greek-speaking Gentiles, the Lord Jesus. These these every-man evangelists would have most certainly preached what they had themselves received from the apostles. They most certainly would have been faithful to the witness of Jesus found in the apostles' witness, the apostles' teaching. What would they have talked about? Well, I think we would have to say that taking our cue from Peter's recorded sermons from the first 10 chapters of Acts, that that these uh, everyman evangelists would have been talking to these Greek-speaking Gentiles who'd never heard about Jesus simply about Jesus. We have to, I think, assume that they would go and talk about Jesus' earthly ministry. Maybe they talked about his birth, about his conception in the mother's womb uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Maybe they talked about the amazing events that heralded the coming of the, the Jesus and his birth Most certainly, I would think, they would talk about his earthly ministry, about his baptism by the hands of John and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him. I think they would have talked about Jesus turning water into wine, walking upon water, feeding multitudes in the wilderness. I think they would have talked about Jesus healing leprosy, making paralyzed people get up and walk, and calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And absolutely, they would have talked about Jesus' crucifixion. And absolutely, they would have talked about Jesus' resurrection. And absolutely, they would have talked about forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And like Peter, absolutely, they would have talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit for all who would believe. And I think they would even have talked about the command that all believers in Jesus give witness to him. So it's not as if these everyman evangelists went into Antioch and changed the content of the proclamation to fit the cultural needs of the city. It's not as if they went and felt the winds of the cultural shift and and preached to the whims of the people. No, they would have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in Scripture as attested to by the apostolic witness, which I think, again, probably has some things to say to us. Just as it's likely that in 2017 America, we may find men and women who've never heard of Jesus and are thus blank slates like these uh, Greek-speaking Gentiles, we too have to be careful in our proclamation of Jesus to be faithful to the apostolic witness found in Scripture. And yes, our words may change, the way we talk may change as culture uh, dictates, but the truth which we proclaim can never change because otherwise there's no life in it. And otherwise, otherwise, the hand of the Lord will certainly not bless a false gospel. Here we see in Acts, the hand of the Lord was with these anonymous Christians, with these everyman evangelists, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon these normal people. And I think it's well within the realm of linguistic possibility to understand that when Luke says the hand of the Lord is with them, that he is intending to imply that they were doing marvelous deeds in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That they, too, were not just proclaiming Jesus and forgiveness of sins, but they were doing acts of mercy, raising paralyzed people to get up and walk, healing people of their illnesses. Used by God to expand his kingdom, these normal people saw growth in the company of believers. Luke here is revealing an incredibly important point, and I think it's an encouraging point. You don't have to be an apostle to be an evangelist, but it also can be pretty scary. Normal, ordinary people are used by God to accomplish his unstoppable plan. Now, in saying this, we have to recognize it's absolutely true. Normal and ordinary people are used by God, but it's just as true that in Jesus, There really is no such thing as a normal or ordinary person. We must remember Jesus' promise again from chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Yes, this promise was specifically given to the apostles as they stood before Jesus. But as Peter made quite clear on the day of Pentecost, all those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit changes everything. And in this, believers in Jesus are more like Spider-Man than Batman. (laughs) You think about it, right? Spider-Man and Batman, probably my two favorite superheroes. They both fight crime. They're both able to do amazing things. But Batman is able to do these amazing things with all sorts of cool gadgets, grappling hooks, batarangs, and the things that the Joker refers to as his wonderful toys, Spider-Man, on the other hand, has powers that come from within. He was bitten by a radioactive spider as a young, unremarkable man, as a nor- normal teenager. Peter Parker's DNA was changed, and and because of the bite of the spider, he now has the strength of a spider, the jumping ability of a spider. He can walk up and down walls like a spider. He can cling to a ceiling like a spider. And while in the comic book, Spider-Man has to develop the web shooters on his wrists, he's very different from Batman because he's changed from the inside. I hope I don't get hit by lightning, Al. I don't want you to get splattered. But in some sense, the Holy Spirit does what the radioactive spider did for Peter Parker. Believers in Jesus, every single one of them, from the apostles to the everyman, are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out mission and ministry. So don't ever think that you're just a normal individual, because there's no such thing in Jesus. What an encouragement, I think, that God uses normal people to accomplish his unstoppable plan. I mean, look what happens in Antioch. Luke records that this church has been planted, right? The the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so because the apostles in Jerusalem uh, are in the position of authority, they send out Barnabas to check the thing out to make sure everything is is copacetic, to make sure Jesus is being correctly proclaimed. And here's evidence that that Jesus was being correctly proclaimed. When Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And very briefly here, Barnabas saw God's grace at work among the people in Antioch. He saw God's grace as Greek-speaking Gentiles were believing in the name He recognized that God was at work there in Antioch, and he took the opportunity to join the work where God was working, and he took the opportunity to go and get another, to go and get Saul, a man he knew to be capable and vibrant, so that Antioch would continue to rise. They saw an opportunity for growth, and they seized it, because more and more more non-believers were becoming believers coming to know Jesus, welcomed into the kingdom, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and taught that which Jesus taught. And so they were known as Christians. The name Christian is is a means of distinction. It's not a name of distinction along national or ethnic lines, but upon religious lines. And it means that those who are so named as Christian were recognized by everyone else to belong to Christ. The name Christian is an external witness. Never be ashamed of the word or the name Christian. Never. Because it means you belong to Christ. It's okay to be ashamed and embarrassed by things that Christians do. But fundamentally, to say I am a Christian says means I follow Jesus. It means these believers were seen as different because of who they worshipped. God uses normal people to accomplish his unstoppable plan to make Christians men and women who belong and follow Jesus. In our highly professionalized society, we think that in order to get something done, we have to see or employ an expert. Even the do-it-yourself network shows uh, has television shows that revolve around the expert giving you advice. Get a hammer and figure it out, right, James? Right. Yeah. It can be tempting, I know, for the church to think that in order for evangelism to get done, we have to bring in the, the experts to bring in evangelists. That misses the point, though. God has his evangelists. They are every man, And God has empowered his everyman inv- evangelists by the greatest expert, with the greatest expert there is, the Holy Spirit. And so in seeking to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom, we need to be intentional about equipping ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit to be every man evangelists. How often have we walked into a social situation of any kind and literally said the prayer, Lord, give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and words to speak in the power of your Holy Spirit. Let me exalt Jesus here and now. Maybe that's really all we need to do. Maybe instead of getting all bound up in, in programs and getting bound up in, in having the right words, is just ask the Holy Spirit to give us those words so that we too, as these anonymous Christians from Acts chapter 11, can be every man evangelists and be used by God to accomplish his unstoppable plan. God used every man evangelist in the rise of Antioch and he uses every man evangelist today. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son